passage this morning is the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. If you'd like to follow along with one of the Bibles in your seats, that's page 906. We have been going through the book of 1 Samuel to take a break to remind ourselves of why not only this day, but every Sunday is a day of celebration in the resurrection of Christ. So let's now attend together to God's Word, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying on the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the foot. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We have for us John's account of the resurrection John is not explicitly mentioned here, but John refers to himself as the other disciple in the passage. And so in this gospel account, we have an intimate picture of that morning. Let's pray that as we read this account inspired by the Spirit through the Apostle John, that we would hear God speaking to us even now. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you who gave us the Son, who gave us your Spirit so that we would know you in your Son. Continue to show us who you are as we read your word this morning, that we would listen 
that we would respond with faith and obedience. Give us understanding. Give us strength where we are weak. Be with us, Lord. Even as we come to celebrate this morning, many of us may have heavy burdens, distractions, Lord. We offer all that we are to you in this moment and know that you are able to work. Please do so, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen. Easter is a day of celebration. It comes regardless of whether we are prepared. Maybe some of the songs were a bit joyful and ecstatic for you. Maybe you're not fully there yet. But the reason it's a day of celebration is because we see it as the day that Christ is risen from the dead. And with that victory over death comes forgiveness of sins, comes the promise of eternal life, and as the kids and I talked about earlier, the promise that we too might be resurrected to have a new life in Jesus. And yet for many in our country, neighbors, friends, colleagues, perhaps family members, some hear what we read this morning, some look at what Christians testify to this morning and say, I just can't buy it. It just seems too good to be true. It's just a wish, wishful thinking. It's too good to be true is, frankly, a fairly sad saying. It's a sad saying because it shouldn't be true. Something that is good should not be too good to be true. But unfortunately, as we've seen it so many times, and not just when someone is trying to advertise something in order to take our money, but in many other circumstances, we find this to be the case, that something is good, but it doesn't endure the way that we want. If it was truly good, if it was truly right, if it was truly beautiful, shouldn't it last? Shouldn't it be more than a fleeting moment? We have another saying to capture that experience all good things must come to an end. Exciting business ventures that don't work out, romances that fade, and the most enduring end that we experience, death. Loved ones, bright and beautiful and good, succumbing in the end to the grave. Our experience in the world shapes us to say, it must be too good to be true. Our experience shapes us to say all good things must come to an end. And so as we go through these experiences, they shape our expectations. They shape what we believe is possible, what we think is happening, which in turn shapes what we believe is possible, what we would dare to hope and believe. Consider maybe how the recent weeks and months have been for you and how it has shaped your outlook on life. How an international pandemic has shaped you. How having that followed by war in Ukraine and other places, how inflation and many other things have shaped you. Do you feel positive at the moment? Do you feel excited and optimistic about life? Or have you experienced days of darkness and wonder and struggle? Or maybe just more personally, how does a bad day at work or a bad day at school affect your evening? Do you come home and, and just completely flip a switch? Or, or are you, at least like me, where a bad day shapes the way that you receive the comments and the actions of the loved ones you see at the end of the day? 
This morning, what I want us to wrestle with as we read through this passage is the possibility that our experiences are not the totality of what's possible. What if our expectations, shaped by our experiences, are too narrow and have hindered our ability to see what is really before us? And what if there is reason to have a greater hope than we would dare allow ourselves to have according to the experiences that we've gone through? Brothers and sisters, the account of John's gospel and the other gospels does not present the resurrection as an idea. As we read the account, we see that this is not a philosophical encounter. It is not a thought experiment. It's not even a call to just have a more positive outlook. What we see in these verses is a real-life event in real time with very real people that forever changes the real world and what they believe is true and can be true. And so as we walk through this passage, we find that Jesus surpasses what we've experienced in the past. He takes us further than we have believed things are possible, and he has surpassed our hope. Jesus surpasses our experiences, our expectations, and our hopes. The opening section of the passage is about the empty tomb, and it focuses on Mary and Peter and John, referred to as the other disciple. But as we pick up in verse 1, this scene, this account, doesn't just drop out of nowhere. It's positioned within history. Things have been happening before we come to chapter 20. It has a history that shaped the people that are at work. Mary is coming because Jesus dies on a Friday, right before the beginning of the Jewish Sabbath. And so Jesus has been hastily prepared and put in the tomb, but they've had to wait through Saturday. They've had to wait through the Sabbath before they could properly care for his body. And Mary, not a wife, not family member, but Mary Magdalene, a disciple, who had been cared for and ministered to by Jesus, who is probably fairly wealthy, has gone and bought the spices necessary to prepare the body and comes to pay respect and care for Jesus. Because she has been a follower of Jesus. She has been a disciple. She refers to him later as Rabuni, which means teacher. What's been going on? She and the twelve and others have been following Jesus. Now, Jesus was not the first rabbi. Jesus was not the first teacher, leader, to gather a following in Palestine. He's not the first that others thought to be the Messiah, not even the first to claim to be the Messiah. But Jesus did do some things differently. He didn't just say, hey, come with me, let's withdraw out of society. We're going to go set up a separate holy society over here. Nor did Jesus collect weapons and a small military band in the hopes of overthrowing the might of Rome. Jesus stands out as slightly different. He teaches with authority the likes that others have not heard before. He healed people. He cast out demons. He raised people from the dead. And he healed a man born blind, which was nothing any other prophet, healer, or magician had ever done, let alone claimed to have done in all of ancient history. And so among all the other options, Mary, the women with her, 
John and Peter and the other disciples, they have chosen to follow Jesus. And maybe their expectations were a little bit higher. He seems different. He seems more powerful. Maybe he will achieve the success these other pretenders in the past have not. But now Mary is going to the same place where all those other leaders, teachers, and proclaimed messiahs ended up the grave. Some of them ended up there in the same way with crucifixion. And in the back of her mind, she has that other experience, that other world-shaping experience, the experience that shapes our songs, our movie, our literature, the finality and reality of death. So when Mary sees the stone roll back, when she sees the tomb empty, she and those with her think, well, Jesus is dead. Dead people can't roll back stones. Someone must have come and taken the body. Maybe opponents of Jesus, maybe those who wanted to add further insult to the ultimate injury. Despite the power, the uniqueness, the promises of Jesus, they see, according to their experience, what is before their eyes. And so that causes them to see it only as a further tragedy instead of what it really is. This is the realism of the Bible that deals with real human beings as we really are with human reactions. We do this in our regular life, our experiences shaping our expectations. Just this week, when I was visiting a, a gas station, I went to the convenience store there, and when I came out, I tripped. Now, me tripping isn't that significant. I do that all the time, unfortunately. But why did I trip in this particular instance? Because this one convenience store is different than almost every other one I've been to. You go into a store, and when you come back out, as you step across the threshold, what happens? You find the ground level with the ground on the inside, right? You either are equal with the pavement outside, or there is a sidewalk, and you step on the sidewalk. Well, in this particular place, as soon as you step out from one level, you step out to the pavement, which is a full step lower. I didn't see it. I didn't notice it. I stumbled. Because all of my past experiences of stepping out of a store have shaped my expectation that I would find a firm step outside. And that has shaped my perception of reality. And so Mary, who has seen all of these other people fail her and Israel and disappoint, and who has only seen death be consistently victorious, holding on to the dead, comes and views the evidence of the empty tomb and doesn't assume Jesus has risen from the dead. Doesn't assume her prayers have been answered. She assumes the worst. But she's not alone. It happens with the other disciples. How their experiences shape their expectations and what they believe is possible. Mary comes and she reports. It only mentions those who she primarily talks to, Peter and John. But the Gospels report that she spoke to all of the disciples but only Peter and John go with them. Well, as Luke tells us, it's because the rest of the disciples, they believe that what they are saying is idle talk. They dismiss the testimony of women because they have been shaped by a society that says women are not as smart, they're not as strong, they're prone to hysterics, so we can't trust the testimony of women. Never mind what's happened. Never mind the teaching and promises of Jesus. They hear the testimony of these women and they discount it as not even worth their time. Only John and Peter go back. 
And we're not even sure what their motives are. Maybe they're curious. Maybe they want to confirm that the tomb is actually empty. We don't know. But they go. And again, what we see here is a depiction of reality. John is younger, far younger than Peter. And so because he's younger, he races ahead with a younger man's legs to go to see what happens at the tomb. But when he gets there, John, who has been frequently described as more emotive, as a little bit more restrained and timid, he can't go in. He can look inside, but he can't bring himself to go in. But Peter, likely huffing and puffing, catches up with him after. And the passage says he goes right into the tomb. And there in the tomb, what do they find? They find evidence that this is not a grave robbery. That the body has not been stolen. The linens that Jesus was wrapped in are laid there neatly. The wrapping around Jesus' head has been folded up and set aside. If you are coming to steal a dead body, even if it's for the purpose of hurting others, you're not going to take the time to unwrap it so that you are carrying a naked dead body around. So what do they do with the evidence? Does Peter, the one that confessed to Jesus, you are the Christ? Does John, who describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, do they shout out in victory and joy, Jesus has risen from the dead? Do they remember that Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it? No. The evidence is in front of them. Yet as we read in verse 9, they are yet to fully understand it. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Jesus has testified to it. And later Peter himself will speak of Psalm 110 as a reference to Jesus' resurrection. But they don't yet understand it. This shapes our understanding of what verse 8 says of John. He finally goes in. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. What does that mean? At the very least, it means that he believed the tale of Mary and the women that came and reported. But that would seem an unnecessary detail. The evidence that the tomb is empty is pretty clear. In the Gospel of John, belief is used as a word to describe various amounts of trust and dependence. Verse 9 seems to make it clear that John does not yet apprehend the truth that Jesus is bodily risen from the dead. More likely, his faith in Jesus is restored. Maybe he believes that, like Elijah, his body has been taken up into heaven. Or Moses, whose body is believed to have had angels carried up into heaven. Maybe something miraculous, something mysterious has happened, but he's not near that. What we have at this moment in the passage is not what we base Easter on. An empty tomb is not the basis of Easter. It wasn't enough for the disciples. They needed something more. And so as Peter and John return with the rest of the disciples to their homes in verse 10, verse 11 finds Mary still there. We find Mary weeping. What does that information indicate to us? That despite the hope that seems to have been kindled in John, despite the evidence that should be clear that the grave has not been robbed, all she sees, despite the evidence, is what her experience of grief. And remember, this is a woman afflicted by seven demons, a woman that knew suffering. 
Her expectation and what she is able to see has been shaped by that. Then two angels appear to her. They ask her, woman, why are you crying? If two angels were to appear to you and say, why are you crying? First of all, an angel knows what's going on. Second of all, that should cause them to, her to say, well, wh why would I not have reason to weep? But she gives the answer. She is continuing to believe that the Lord's body has been taken. She doesn't yet grasp it. But Jesus does not leave her in that moment. Jesus appears to her. He asks her, Woman, why are you weeping? She repeats her answer. Sir, if, assuming him to be the gardener, if you have carried him away, tell me where they have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus now penetrates her lack of understanding, penetrates her lack of sight and says to her in a tone I'm sure she's familiar with, Mary. Jesus speaks her name. Jesus reveals himself to her when her experiences and her expectations would cloud her sight, cloud her understanding. He reveals something beyond the possibility of what she could imagine. The only thing she can imagine is that some great tragedy has befallen her former rabbi and lord but she turns and says to him in Aramaic having her cloud pierced Rabboni my teacher and then Jesus speaks to her again he says don't cling to me the gospel of Luke describes her and the other women clinging to Jesus' feet why does Jesus say this? Is it wrong for her to be excited to see Jesus? Is it wrong for her to want to cling to him and embrace her leader, the person that has saved her from her affliction? Is that wrong? No. But what Jesus is confronting is her perception of what his bodily presence means. Because in all likelihood, what she's thinking is he's back. The nightmare of the last few days can be erased. We can go back to where things were on Thursday. We can go back to celebrating the Passover. We can be, go back to anticipating some great victory for God's people, the removal of the Romans. This is her highest desire. This is her highest hope. Jesus is back. But Jesus surpasses her expectations, surpasses what at the moment is her greatest hope. Jesus didn't come to restore himself to his disciples so that he could finalize his earthly kingdom. Jesus rose to restore his disciples to God so that they could enjoy an eternal kingdom. Jesus says, don't cling to me. Why? For I have yet not ascended to the Father. I have not yet fulfilled the purpose of my resurrection to go back to my Father. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus rising from the dead confirms every promise he made, every hint at who he was, but the resurrection is not the point in and of itself. The resurrection is the means by which his declared victory allows us to enjoy that victory so that as he goes to his Father in heaven, we can know God as Father. So that we who have been estranged by sin and deserve judgment and the wrath of God, can embrace him as our God, just as Jesus, who has been declared the beloved Son of God by his resurrection, can. 
Jesus has something far greater than what his disciples had been able to hear to anticipate or hope as they follow him. Even Mary, seeing the risen Jesus from the dead, has her hopes so far pushed beyond what she could have dreamed. He's back. We get to go back to the way things were. Jesus says, no. I am ascending to carry you further than you could have ever imagined. What does this mean for us? First of all, when we are confronted with questions about the resurrection, we need to deal with the reality that belief in the resurrection came as opposed to everything that the disciples showed themselves able and ready to believe. They had no experience of resurrection. They didn't anticipate resurrection. And for the disciples and then the witnesses in the early church to suddenly claim that someone had risen from the dead that would never die again, something would have had to have happened to change their perception of reality. What, what is more unlikely that a group of people invented an idea of resurrection for a rabbi, a Jewish carpenter who walked among them, who was crucified in the shameful death of an opponent of the empire, is it more unlikely that they would invent that or that something happened to change their very perception of what was possible? Personally, if you're not particularly excited or joyful this morning, if you have been struggling with disappointment and setback, let us be reminded that disappointment doesn't equal God letting us down. The disciples thought that they were under attack, that Jesus had been defeated. They fled. Most of them not even being there when Jesus, their beloved leader, was crucified. They thought, it's over. It's gone. They're after us. But Jesus had something far greater for them than what they were expecting. When we struggle with our expectations not being met, that doesn't deny the fact that it hurts anymore. Jesus doesn't deny the sadness and the crying and the weeping of Mary. But maybe our expectations have been set in the wrong place. And maybe while what God has for us right now is painful and difficult and disorienting, he has something more for us than what we can anticipate. And lastly, it calls us to ask ourselves, do we want to be defined by what the world says about us? A world that tells us that if you make a bad enough mistake, it's too late, you can never go back. A world that often communicates to us only those that deserve it can be loved. Only the rich or the powerful or the beautiful are worth love. What about the insults or the ways that you've been treated that tell you you aren't of value? Will we allow our experiences to set our expectations of what is possible? Or we will allow a Jesus who pushes past what we normally experience, open up our eyes to things beyond what we would expect so that we can have a hope that is greater than what the world offers, that we can be forgiven. Not only forgiven, but we can be called beloved of God the Father. That not only can you be loved, but you are loved, and it is the love of God that sent his son into this world that we could be redeemed 
from our sins. That you could be valued. For Jesus so valued us that we were the joy set before him to bring glory to God in giving his life for you and for me. Brothers and sisters, for some, the resurrection is too good to be true. Brothers and sisters, according to my experience of what I think is possible, of what I think could happen, of how my experiences have been shaped, it is too good not to be true. I expect to be judged. I expect to be forgotten. I expect to be left behind and disappointed. Jesus shows us that our experience is not all there is. That he has something beyond what we have seen, beyond what we expect, beyond what we could hope. Where we live according not to man's abilities, but Jesus' ability to change reality for us. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we rejoice in the gift of your Son. We rejoice in the resurrection, Lord. But open our eyes. Speak to us as Jesus spoke to Mary. Show yourself to us where we would close our eyes to the truth of your love and forgiveness, the offering of hope and mercy and compassion in you. Lord, when the shouts of judgment and condemnation of this world or even the false approval which approves us of things that are so unimportant. Lord, would those be drowned out by your voice calling us to see you so that in Jesus we might know you, God, as our Father and our God. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.